0: Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. So, again, we've come as far as Revelation chapter 5. We'll pick up here in verse 1, and and as we do so, in chapter 5, we're going to continue here with the vision that John has of the throne room of heaven. Chapters 4 and 5 really go together. We've split them into two parts, but this is one continuous vision. This is the same event that is unfolding And in chapter 4, the emphasis was on God the Father, who is seated on the throne, and we see the worship that is afforded to Him as the one who is sovereign over all creation. And then here in chapter 5, our attention will turn to the Lamb of God, who is, of course, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we'll look at His authority and His authority alone to take and open the scroll that is seen in the right hand of God the Father. In chapter 5, like much of the book already, will reinforce for us the centrality of Jesus Christ. All attention continues to be placed on Jesus Praise God for that. And what we'll see here in this chapter is a vision of Jesus, of one who is victorious over sin and death, making him worthy of the worship of all creation. Now, it's important to remember from chapter 4 onward, we are reading of the account of the things which are to come. So from chapter 4 forward including here in chapter five this is future looking we're not looking back we're not looking on a historical text we're looking forward and that should be really exciting for us okay sometimes when we read scripture scripture of course being God-breathed inspired relevant of course for today having bearing on our life today application for us today but still sometimes when we read we And rightfully so, we think back, right? And if you read through Acts or you read through the Gospels, and some of you, we all think a little bit differently, right? Some of you are more visual or maybe you play things out in your mind, whatever the case may be. You're thinking oftentimes back to something that happened. You're thinking about the historical Jesus who lived and walked on the earth. But the cool thing for us as we start to look at Revelation 4 and on, and and as we consider here tonight, is we can read about this and we can begin to to picture the best we can what's being described for us, and we can hear tonight as believers say, We're gonna see this, we're going to experience this. What we read about tonight, you can this is the brochure for you a little bit to go, This is what's in store. We're going to, we're going to experience this. Uh, you, if you go on a trip, sometimes we've been on, on different trips we go to go different places. And, and sometimes maybe you, you go to a show, right? Or you, you, you go down to Disney and you're like, oh, we're going to, we're going to go see this thing. We're going to go see that thing. And you have a sense of like, we're going to go, we're going to watch this. I can remember when the kids were little and we went to see some of the different things at Disney and we're getting them all excited. And we show them the thing on the website and you're like, you're going to see this. You're going to experience this. And they're like, oh, this is so awesome, guys you're going to see this. You're going to experience this. Are you excited about that? You're going to go to the throne room of heaven and you're going to see Jesus, the Lamb of God, you're going to see Him take a scroll and and begin to, to, to unleash, yes, terrible things upon the earth, but all the things that He is in control of and He is over because He is the Creator God. And He's going to bring His plan of salvation to its completion you're can to be a part of that we should be excited about these things and so these events are yet to unfold and John is standing in the throne room of heaven Jesus said hey come on up and john's like okay here we go and and so we don't know exactly how he's there and uh, but he's there he's seeing these things and in that and this is in a timeline where we believe and this is of course debated, Very much, amongst a lot of people. But my view of this is that the rapture has occurred. I think here in chapter 4 we see this even more clearly in terms of who's there in the throne room of heaven. And so I believe here that the rapture has occurred, and the tribulation period is about to unfold on the earth. And we read here in verse 1, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, as we discussed last week, there's some debate over who the one is who is seated on the throne, whether it's God the Father or Jesus, the Holy Spirit. All three are there. All three are present here in the throne room of heaven. But I believe that it is God the Father who is seated on the throne, and we see here that there's a scroll in his right hand, and the scroll has written on it words on the front and the back. We get the sense here that this scroll is filled. There's a lot of stuff on this thing. It's full, and it's sealed with seven seals. So what is this scroll? What information does it contain? As we'll see, and as we even sang about, there's this sense that no man is worthy to open it, So neither you nor I can really know for sure what's in this scroll. And and truly, we we don't really know. Some say of this scroll that it is the Old and New Testaments. Um, Some say that it's fulfilled prophecy that's that's written in this. Some say it's a, a statement on the nation of Israel or even the title deed to the earth. Some that it is the last will and testament of Jesus, or some that it's the writings of Ezekiel, or the hidden writings, the closed writings of Daniel. You can make better arguments for some of these things than you can for others. Contextually, we know a couple of things. When we see things like a scroll that has seven seals on it. First, uh, within Roman law, it required that a will, a last will and testament, that it be sealed seven times. So in the Roman culture, a last will and testament would be a scroll, a document that was sealed seven times. So some look at that and they say, well, maybe this is what this is then. This is, this is Jesus in his, his direction, his last instructions, right? And so the last will and testament of Jesus Christ would essentially be, here's what's, here's what's to happen. Here's how things are to be taken care of. As we'll see in the following chapters, the process of loosing the seals of this scroll begins to result in in Jesus' rule of the earth. A plan is going to unfold. So again, some people uh, make the argument for this. There's another uh, context that we can look at. In Jewish culture, a family that was in the unfortunate situation of having to forfeit their land for a variety of reasons and their possessions were to do so in such a way where it wasn't permanent. So a Jewish family that had to forfeit their land could essentially give up the rights to it, but it was intended to not be a permanent and binding thing. Rather, what would happen is that their losses, their land and their possession, would be recorded in a scroll, and it would be sealed seven times. And the necessary conditions for redeeming the land, would be listed on the outside of the scroll. And only when a qualified redeemer was found to do so, to be able to do this, would the seals then be broken and the land returned. This is an interesting perspective for us because some believe since the earth, the creation was for man, but was forfeited during the fall, That perhaps this is the qualified redeemer, Jesus, restoring to man the creation intended for him. And so what we'll see then here as this progresses, as as this book unfolds, is that with the breaking of the seals, judgment will be released on the world. Further salvation will come of, of Jew and Gentile alike, and there will be a restoration and a renewal of heaven and earth. And so it's a pretty good argument to say that this could function very much like a scroll intended to be for someone who was redeeming the land and restoring it, because what we see throughout history is this, this picture of creation all the way to new creation, new heaven and a new earth. And so there's a lot of things that we could dig into here and debate different things and consider different perspectives. And it's fun to do so. But I think for us, what we need to also realize here is the focus is not really to be on the content of the scroll as much as the one who is worthy to open it. right? And that's Jesus. Here we see in verses 2 and 3, John's writing again, and he says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming or or almost asking with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals and no one verse 3 in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it there was no one worthy the word strong here means mighty or powerful. And so this is a mighty or powerful angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? Here this big event is unfolding for John to see. And now many believe that this angel is Gabriel. We really don't know. Um, but it would it would seem that, that this is probably an important angel who has this role. But the emphasis, and John makes this clear, is that... that they were looking here in heaven and on earth and there was not one who was worthy to open or to look at this scroll. And so this really is a sobering moment. Fortunately, it's just a moment, but it's a sobering one and it has an impact on John. Note here that none of the saints, because there's a lot at this point, and we'll see this, there's a lot of different people that are there in heaven. There's believers there, there's angels there, there's saints there who are representative of the church. Abraham didn't go, hey, I got it, I'll step up. Moses, they didn't say, where's Moses? Moses, we need you one more time. Elijah, Daniel. I mean, Daniel was a pretty good guy. None of the apostles. Peter, maybe. was like, hey, take a stab. (laughs) Poor Peter. That's just wrong, isn't it? Right? And Peter's like, no, come on. Mary? Mary couldn't do it. And what of this then? Because this is what John, we have to understand, this is what John's seen. Right? He doesn't know. He's trying to take this stuff in. Right? I can barely watch an exciting movie and not be overwhelmed. And that's just man's effort to entertain. So what John's experiencing here in the throne room of heaven is pretty intense. And so he's watching all this, and and God the Father on the throne, he's got this scroll, and then an angel comes out, and a big, powerful angel he's like, this this dude is, is the real deal. And he says, who's worthy? And they're like, nobody. And John's thinking, oh no, this isn't good. Nobody, nobody. And why does John care about this? Why is he concerned about this? Well, let's take the view for a moment. Again, you can debate it, but let's take the view for a moment that the scroll is in fact the, the title deed to the earth. That this is man's lost heritage. And so for here, John, if he has a sense that this is what that scroll is, and he says, nobody, n- nobody can open this. This is, this is the title deed to the earth. This is the plan for the rest of History. This is the last will and testament and it can't be opened. And so what happens then? John's immediate response, verse 4, he says, so I wept. I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And of course, we're sitting here and we have hindsight being 20 We've got the full book. We're like, well, Jesus is there. It's okay, John. But in this moment, John's thinking, No. It's got to be somebody. Theologian W. A. Criswell, he writes this of John's experience, I think it's pretty insightful. He says, "John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all of the centuries. They're the tears of Adam and Eve as they view the still form of their dead son, Abel, and sense the awful consequence of their disobedience. They are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried to God for deliverance from their affliction and slavery. There are the sobs of tears wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they have stood beside the graves of loved ones and experienced the indescribable heartaches and disappointments of life. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. It's no wonder John wept so fervently. If no Redeemer could be found to remove the curse, it meant that God's creation was forever consigned to remain in the hands of Satan. You have to understand that in this moment for John, he's thinking, wait a second, why is there no one worthy? Because think about it, our hope in this life is based on what Christ has done, but also what he's going to do, right? It's what he's going to do. Scripture is really broken into four sections. You have the very beginning, which is, here, are the way, here is the way things were intended to be. And now we're living in, here is the time of, of what things are now. And then, here, are the way, here is the way that things could be if you are walking in Christ. And then, here is what will be. But there's a whole lot of hope that's placed in what could be and what will be. And so here for John, as he's now looking at this and thinking, is there no one? You know, Paul gives us insight into this. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, verse 19, he says that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men to be the most pitied. Our hope is dependent upon what God will do. So we have to understand that for John in this moment, he's thinking, this is horrible. He's thinking, is there no one? And if so, how awful. Nevertheless, verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so here, one of the elders says to John, uh, as much as, as, it, as the word says to us today, don't weep. Don't cry. It's okay. The Lion of Judah has prevailed. Amen? Genesis Chapter 49, verses 9 and 10. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. From the very beginning, God was telling the world prophecy of what would happen, of what would come. Judah was the tribe from which King David would come, and to David was promised a forever throne, a kingdom that would last forever. He was told of the prophets that from him would come the prince of peace. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And so the elder says the lion of the tribe of Judah will do it a lion, majestic, powerful, a king. Now in this moment then, John is relieved because he's being told and no doubt he he's familiar with these terms and he's saying, okay, okay, praise God, because I was worried for a moment that my hope was in that life only. But no, he's told here the, the lion of the tribe of Judah will do it and now what is he expecting to see? He's seen the glorified risen Christ as described to us at the beginning of Revelation, and now he's being told, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he looks, and, and was he expecting to see? I don't know if it was you, if it was me, i think a pretty awesome lion is about to come out. I love the lion. Do You guys like the lion? I think it's biblical that we like lions. And whenever we go to the zoo, if it's the right time of day, and that lion just feels ready to go and starts roaring, like, that is awesome. I absolutely love that. It's one of my most favorite things to, to see. And I would want to see that. I would want him to come out roaring like a lion. And so th- I have to think this is maybe what he's expecting, but in verse 6, he looks, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and I'm sort of dragging this out here, but the original language here, John does this. He sort of builds up to this point. And this is why I think that he, that he was kind of feeling this way. He's just like, wait a second. As I'm looking around, here in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, a lamb that'll let down. We've been considering 1 Corinthians, right? Is God's wisdom the same as ours? No. Here we see a lamb. And it's not just any lamb. This is the word for lamb that's used here is the Greek arneos, which means a little pet lamb. Just a little thing. I thought there was a lion. This doesn't make sense, right? To some degree, it sort of, it it, it frustrates our senses a little bit. Like, wait a second. A little pet lamb? But here's where we have to then look at this and we have to consider what has God been doing from the very beginning. It all makes sense. When we consider His plan of salvation, when we consider what God has been doing, it all makes sense. We go all the way back to Genesis. I'm of the opinion this... I don't think it's much of a stretch, but it doesn't say it exactly. When Adam and Eve fall, and they realize, well, they're in their sin, and now they realize that they're naked, and what do they do in their nakedness? They hide themselves. They get some little leaves. And they're like, I think this will work. And then they realize this isn't working. Right? And God comes because He's used to walking with them, having intimacy with them, being with them in the cool of the day. He's walking there in the garden, and God says, where are you? And they're hiding out, thinking maybe He's not going to notice. And... In an incredible act of love and grace and of mercy, what does God do? He slaughters a lamb. Now the Scripture isn't incredibly clear that it's a lamb, but I believe that it is. And He clothes them. He covers them. But Genesis, if we go out a little further, we say, okay, we can't use that one. Well then let's go to Genesis 22, verse 8. Abraham and Isaac. God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. We're heading into this season. Passover. God delivering His people miraculously from Egypt. And there on the last night He says, get for yourself a lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. He calls them to get a lamb. A lamb that they will get to know that throughout history we see that the, the Passover process implements a lamb that they would come to know, a little pet lamb that they would befriend, that, that, that would become truly a sacrifice to them, it would be a difficult loss to them, and that they would, they would slaughter the lamb, its blood would be shed, its blood there on the doorposts of their houses, such that the angel of death would pass over. It's a lamb that Isaiah speaks of in chapter 53 verse 7 like a lamb being led to the slaughter. It's that lamb that that there at the beginning of John John the Baptist declares in John 1:29, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see as we see the lamb here now in the throne room of heaven what we need to realize is that all of these prophecies Only a few mentioned, and there's more that we could have looked at, find their fulfillment in the victorious warrior lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. I mean, think about what God has been doing here. If you think about the scroll, if it's the land deed to creation, or some variation of that, something that functions similarly, then then what we need to see here is that God has been about his plan of salvation in doing this work from genesis to revelation it's from creation to new creation right he he's been at work from the very beginning and in that time he has given us continually this picture of a lamb of sacrifice and in the, in the Lamb, I mean, and, and, and so look at these periods in time. We see in the beginning the sacrificial Lamb, the Passover Lamb. We see then in the middle the Lamb, who, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who's hanging on a cross. And now, as we look forward and we think about this time, we see the Lamb on the throne. Think about that. He's now on the throne. And so this is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's this delicate lamb. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done. It reminds us that Jesus gets to rule. That He he gets to be the lion because He was the lamb. And this is God's way. The last shall be first and the first last. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's always upside down. It's always backwards. It's always different than how we see it in our natural minds. He gets to be the lion because He was the lamb, because He took our place, because He was sacrificed. And that's ever so evident here as it's not just a lamb, but John says, and again, he's trying to describe for us, he says, but it's a, it's a lamb it's alive, but yet it looks as if it was slain. We don't even know exactly what this looks like. Is this a lamb with, with stripes across its side because it was, it, it was scarred? Is this a lamb that has the evidence of crimson blood against its pure white wool? What, what is it here? This, this idea of, of, of being slain or slaughtered is in the tense, the Greek tense, such that it's continual. It's in the perfect tense, which means that there's a permanence to His sacrifice. What we we see, what we find, not only in, in the Lamb here, but even in the description of Jesus, as we'll see later in the book, is that even though Jesus is glorified, even though He is resurrected and alive, the evidence of His sacrifice is still upon Him. And I believe that for all of eternity, we will see His pierced side. We will see holes in His hands. There will forever be a reminder of what He has done for us. Now He gives further description of the Lamb here, which again, these are the things that start to sort of freak us out a little bit. He says, well, it has seven horns and seven eyes. And horns, we must understand, speaks of power. And so here he is declaring of this lamb that it is powerful. And so even though it's a little pet lamb, it's evident that it's been sacrificed and is alive again, and that it has power, which speaks of his omnipotence. And seven eyes, speaking of seeing, of searching the whole earth, it speaks of his omniscience, his all-knowing and omnipresence, his all-presence everywhere the description here that's described to the lamb to Jesus are the very attributes of god so don't let anybody tell you that Jesus isn't god and then comes verse 7 and you must understand i don't it's always your choice to write in your bible i don't ever want to tell you you have to write in your bible but if you're prone to like highlighting a verse or circling a verse you could circle verse 7 because this is one of the most important and most exciting verses In the Bible. Then He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. A suitable Redeemer has been identified in Jesus. He's the only one. No one else could do it. Him and Him alone. There is one way to God the Father, one way to eternity, that's through Jesus Christ and no one else. Amen? And look, when this happens here, what you have to understand, and it's going to be described, this is what's going to happen, is you get what will be absolutely unequivocally the greatest celebration that you've ever been a part of. We cheer for touchdowns. People go crazy. What is it, the Seattle Seahawks? Is that the one? Where they're like, man, the decibel level in here when people, right? And they're like, yeah. And when they score a touchdown, you're going to go deaf. Your ears are going to bleed because it was a touchdown and it's like awesome okay what about when the lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of god that will be unbelievable praise this is one of the ultimate moments in history And I would reiterate again what I shared at the beginning. This is not something we're simply reading about. This is not something that we go, oh, that must have been cool. We get to say as believers, that's going to be awesome. We get to experience this. We get to be a, a part of this. You're going to be present for this, Christian. Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy to do this. Only him, he takes the scroll. And when he does, praise erupts. Verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, these are angelic creatures, these are the ones with the face of a man and the face of a lion and the face of a, uh, a, a bear and the face of uh, livestock or the eagle. Um, and, and here they, the four living creatures, and then the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. So they go prostrate before him, each having a harp, and so this is the instrument of praise and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We're going to see this again a few chapters from now. And so as the only one worthy to take the scroll, this means that He is the only one worthy of worship. And look at the nature of the worship here that follows. They begin to sing to Him. He takes the scroll and And here's the thing, I have to believe that even the act of taking it alone sent shockwaves through the throne room. I mean, this had to be a powerful moment. I don't think this was just sort of like, oh, pass it off, you know, I got it. He didn't fumble it. It was like, boom! And it just echoes through the whole throne room of heaven. Are there any Marvel fans here? I got to know this, because otherwise I won't even talk about it. There's a few. You remember in the last one when uh, Captain America picks up the hammer? You remember this? Who's, who, who can normally just, who, who can hold the hammer? Thor. He's the only one. He was the only one who was worthy. And then all of a sudden, in the last one, Endgame, Captain America picks that sucker up. And what happened in the movie theater? People were like, oh, this is amazing, right? And it was like this powerful moment. And all that stuff, all, Marvel and all these things, all it is is people's attempt to tell the biblical story. Okay, just so you know. And anybody who's like, wait, what are you talking about? It's like, yes, everybody's telling a story about a Savior because we, we, we need that, we want that. It's, it's what's created in us, right? And people are cheering for it, and it's this exciting thing. It's like, holy smokes, we didn't think anybody was worthy, but this guy was worthy. And it's just such a fake, cheap knockoff of the real thing. And this is what's happening. And so here, it's just an incredible moment as he takes it. And as he does, everybody falls down before him both redeemed men, these powerful angels. Now the golden bowls, which are the prayers of the saints, this is, and again, we're going to get to this a little bit later in the book, but these are literally the prayers of the saints. We're reminded here that that there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And so these are not the elders praying for the saints. These are not people who prayed to the elders. No, this is the prayers of God's people. He lifted up to Him, and they begin to sing. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for You were slain and have redeemed us to God by Your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. We're gonna sing this song. The song here honors many things. I think it's um Oh, where's it going here? Help me out, Dallas Theological Seminary. Bob? Walvard. Thanks for helping. John Walvard writes the song honors the worker of redemption, that he has redeemed us. The song honors the destination of redemption, that he's redeemed us to God. The song honors the payment of redemption, that it was by your blood. The song honors the scope of redemption, that it was every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The song honors the length of redemption, that he's made us kings and priests to our God. The song honors the result of redemption, that we shall reign on the earth. Look at how much is included in this one little song. Declaration of what will be. That he's redeemed us. That he was slain. That he's redeemed us to God. It was by his blood. And it's every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You think it's any coincidence why Satan in our world today is seeking to divide people more than ever before? Cause the church to think that they shouldn't take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Every tribe and tongue and people and nation made us kings and priests we're going to reign on the earth and look at this here here's this thing we've got to consider this i don't know we're we're starting to run out of time in here and depending on the translation that you use you may see some difference in the language some some of the language speaks of we and of us and some of the translations or paraphrases don't necessarily say us it may say them or it may say mankind You may even have a note in your Bible that would suggest that the original or the authoritative or the best manuscript translates it that way, that it's them or mankind. I think that's wrong. George Ladd, he was a a post-trib person. He said this. He said, if in fact the word is us, if it's rightly translated us, then that group then here in the heavenly throne room is speaking of their own redemption. And it must then refer to the church and immediately makes everyone a pre-tribulationist. You see how important the distinction between us and we versus them and mankind is? Just one little word makes all the difference. And so there's been this rise again even recently of of preterism and post-tribulationism where Israel as a nation is de-emphasized. The church has replaced it. um, That the church will be here through the time of the tribulation. But I don't think that's what the word says here. I think it's speaking of us. I think we're there in the throne room celebrating our redemption here as the tribulation begins to unfold. They say, but the manuscripts, but the manuscripts say this and that. There's only 95 Greek manuscripts with the book of Revelation. Now, here's where people go on this. They say, and only 23 of those 95 manuscripts say us. So they say it would seem fitting then that it's not us. The problem is only 24 of the manuscripts contain chapter 5. So that means 23 of the 24 manuscripts of chapter 5 say us. Are you tracking? Is that making sense? That means that 23 of the 24 manuscripts that we have of Revelation chapter 5 are translated us and we, speaking of the church. Implication being the church is there in the throne room of heaven celebrating our redemption. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. This then helps us to understand a little bit that now we're referring to angels less than that the elders are likely angels because the angels are called out specifically as angels around the throne. The living creatures, the elders, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. There's an innumerable number of angels with sevenfold Perfect praise for Jesus. In every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Worship of both Jesus as God And then the four living creatures said, verse 14, Amen. And the 24 elders again fell down and worshiped Him who lives forever and ever. This word worship, as we considered last week, meaning to prostrate themselves, to lay before another in complete submission. Guys, you want a picture of worship? This is our picture of worship. This is what worship is about. Worship is not limited to the perfect song selection and the perfect audio equipment and the right number on a Sunday morning. It's about recognizing that there is one who is worthy, that he gave himself for us, that he is sovereign over all things, that because of what he has done, he deserves our absolute and complete submission to say, my life is yours. And for us, it's a song, it's another song that we sing. For us, it boils down then to the question of, okay, if we, if we believe this to be true, if we are seeking to bring ourselves under the authority of Scripture, then it's incumbent upon us, not from a place of condemnation, no, but to ask ourselves, even to say, Lord, search my heart, to say, am I giving myself in worship to anything else? Because if I know that this is what I'm created for, destined for, if this is my path, if this is my story, if all of us will one day be here in this place prostrating ourselves before Him, declaring you and you alone are worthy, then why are we waiting? Why are we waiting? Why do we desire then to say, well, God, hold on a moment. I'm going to give a little bit of worship over here. I'm going to give a little more attention here or there. No, let's start by saying, You've got it, Lord. And this is a daily practice. It's a daily habit, right? Lord, you've given me today. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you can say, well, I'm alive, I guess. I'm breathing. He's given me another day. So what am I going to do with today? Am I going to enjoy the many blessings that he's given to me because he's gracious and merciful? Absolutely. Absolutely but I'm going to do it from a place of worship, a place of surrender, that when we wake up in the morning that we should set out to say, I am going to throw my life on the altar once again today, Lord. I'm yours. My life is yours. Do with me what you will, as you will. Use me however you want. I'm yours. There's no one else that I belong to but you because you died for me. I was bought at a price. There's going to come a time when we will see the Lamb, the one who is worthy. And it will be in a constant state, this reminder that He died for you. Amen? And so as we close tonight, we're going to take the opportunity just to recognize that. As David and Victoria lead us in song here tonight, as you feel led, we're going to do it a little differently tonight. I'm just going to open up the trace here. And as you feel led, come. Take the elements. Turn to your seat. Continue to sing, pray, and then take when you feel ready. And let's take the opportunity here tonight to just recognize with these symbols in our hands that it was his body that was given for us, broken for us, his blood that was shed that gives to us the promise. Of what we've considered here tonight. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we pause here as we begin to close here tonight, and we recognize once again that you are so good. You are indeed a good Father, a perfect Father who cares for us in ways that we cannot even begin to understand. And Lord Jesus, we recognize that you and you alone are worthy. And it's because of what you have done for us. You were slain. You've redeemed us. You've redeemed us to God. You did so by your blood. You did it for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made us kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. We celebrate that here tonight. And as we sing and as we partake of communion... Lord, may we do so in right hearts that perhaps even just a little bit more understand here this evening that Jesus, it's because of what You've done, that You've made a way. You've done it all. And so we want to recognize that as we're encouraged in Scripture to look back and to consider and remember what You've done for us to look inward here and now and consider what it is you want to do in us and through us and to look forward with great excitement to the culmination of all of these things when you will finish the work that you began. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. pray that this time would be pleasing to you, fruitful to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.